And at this time, I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. Whether you have a, a paper copy or a digital copy of God's Word, or if you don't have either, I want to encourage you right there in the pew in front of you uh, is a copy of God's Word. And you may be wondering why is it important that I open it and read it, because I want you to see what God says. And I want us to be able to study it together as this morning we're going to do the back half of the outline that we started last week talking about victory in Christ. Uh, you know, we're, we're now about four weeks away uh, from college football starting. And every year there is a major surprise that happens in college sports. Most time football, sometimes basketball. Uh, you know, in the pregame leading up to the start of the game, you'll hear announcers say, today's matchup is a matchup of David versus Goliath. Every year it happens, but every year people are surprised by it. Whether it is JMU or Old Dominion upsetting Virginia Tech, or the University of Maryland at Baltimore County upsetting Virginia, someone from somewhere jumps up and does the quote-unquote unthinkable. You know, it's kind of funny. There, there's actually a, an anatomy, so to speak, of an upset. The anatomy of it is this. It it's, takes a team that has nothing to lose, who is completely committed to their goal, their coach, their teammates, and their cause. You, you get all of that, and you got a chance at, at pulling off something that will, quote-unquote, shock the college sports world. Now, maybe you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with victory in Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Remember, this is the one big thing from last week, that our call as Christians is to be faithful and obedient to God, knowing that victory is certain because of the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. So let's see how it plays out again as we study this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 12 and ask, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and, and the door was open unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always calls us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now this is where we're going to pick it up. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we open it to study it, Lord, may we come humbly, understanding our need for you. And Father, may you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing is that we are called to be faithful and obedient to God, knowing that victory is certain because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Last week, we talked about being in God's will and said that there's nothing more important that we could do than to be in God's will. 
How could we know that we're in God's will? Well, we said that we are to, as Paul says in verse 12, to preach Christ's gospel. That as I redeem everyday moments with a gospel purpose, then I will be in God's will and I'll be glorifying God. And so as we live God's will by preaching God's message, we then see the third part of this text, which is this. We see God's victory. Now, Paul is going to paint for us a picture of celebration starting in verse 14. He is talking about a parade that was very common in his day. It's called a triumph parade. And what it was is if a Roman general went out and killed at least 5,000 people and conquered new land for the Roman Empire, when he and his officers and the enlisted soldiers came home, they would have this big parade thrown for them. They would ride in these golden chariots right down the middle of the capital city. And so you would have the, the general and his officers in this chariot. And then you would have the spoils of war following behind And you would have the enlisted soldiers who had helped win this battle. They would be marching behind. But there was also the captured enemy. They were being paraded through the city. And this is really what Paul is getting at in verse 16 when he talks about the savor of death unto death and the savor of life unto life. For the conquering soldiers, that parade was about their victory, about a job well done. But for those captured enemy soldiers, that parade was reminding them of their impending death. And so Paul is painting this picture for us of a big celebration that was common in his day. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because we don't see that in our day. Uh, But here is something that we do see in our day. A, what they call a ticker tape parade for a championship team. You know, a couple weeks ago, the women's a U.S. national soccer team after winning the World Cup. They came to New York City and they had one of these big celebrations. And there in Manhattan, they have what's known as the Canyon of Heroes. Every championship team takes this journey up Broadway. And it starts there at Battery Park and it goes up Broadway and ends at City Hall. And what they do on the day of this victory parade is the team, the coaches, all the people of the organization, they get together and they have their trophy and they board several buses. And they leave from lower Manhattan and go up Broadway till they get to City Hall. And as they're traveling that that journey, there's literally thousands upon thousands of people lining both sides of the street. And there's this big celebration that is happening. Okay, this is kind of what uh, Paul is describing here. But what Paul is getting at is not celebrating the conquering of land or the death of people. Rather, he is talking about celebrating the victory that Jesus won on the cross and at the resurrection. See, this isn't about the killing of 5,000 people. This is about celebrating how God had saved more than 5,000. And if you go early in the book of Acts, we see the day of Pentecost, 3,000 are saved. After that, 2,000 more are saved. The book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, closes by saying that, and the Lord added unto the church daily those who would be saved. 
And so this victory parade that Paul is talking about it is a victory to remind us of the power of the gospel. You and I are walking behind our conquering king as living testimonies and living trophies, but also as a gospel witness to tell the world, listen, if God can save us, God can save them. You've heard me say this numerous times, that no one has sinned so egregiously that the grace of God cannot save them completely. And this victory march, this parade, serves as a reminder of the power of God, that He is able to save anyone who will confess their sin and trust in what He did on their behalf. Yo, Jesus mentioned how there is a celebration in heaven when one person repents. We see it in Luke 15. He says, I tell you that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. You know, it, 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 I said it on Wednesday. I think there's one thing that the church needs to get a little bit better at, and that is celebrating the blessings and work of God. We, we need to stand back and just be in awe of who he is and the power and the, the majesty of what he is able to do. But here's the thing. This victory isn't dependent on you and I. This victory was fought and won at the cross of Calvary outside of Jerusalem. And it was secured three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. So you and I, we are not trying to fight for a victory. Rather, we are fighting from the victory. In other words, we know this, that because Jesus rose from the dead, the end of it's done. It's settled. Those who have placed their faith in Christ, they are secured in Christ for all time. And so, we're not trying to be good enough. We're not trying to earn our way into salvation. Rather, we're walking behind going, Look at what the power of God can do. It can save a wretch like me. But we also have a responsibility, which is where we're going to camp for a little bit. See, as a believer who has been saved by grace, you and I have two important tasks that we cannot fail to accomplish. The first one is prayer. You know, last week we asked the question, who is your one? Who is the person that you know right now does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Who can you begin to pray for every single day that God would soften their heart, that he would open their understanding to the gospel, and then pray that you and I would be bold enough to share it with them? And I hope you've been doing that all this week. If not, listen, start today. Who is your one? Because we not only want to pray, understand, the work of salvation is a work that only God can do. So in our prayer, we are asking God to do what only He can do, so only He receives the glory. But then we want to be responsible and obedient by going out and sharing the gospel with those that we come in contact with. And this can be done if you want to go knock on doors, house to house, absolutely. If you want to share the gospel with those that you come in contact with on a regular basis, okay. The key is that we are actively sharing the gospel. 
in all that we do. We redeem those everyday moments for a gospel purpose. We see everything as God giving us an opportunity for us to know more about Him, to draw us deeper in faith in Him, and then to be more obedient to Him. You and I need to have this mentality that every no to the gospel brings us that much closer to the next yes. Because we have this promise, church, in God's word. He has promised that as the gospel is shared, some will believe. Some are going to be saved. Now, not everybody, but some. So don't look at no as a door slammed in our face or, oh, we did something wrong or, oh, it's so terrible. No, no, that no is preparing us to celebrate the yes that God is going to give at some point. So we just continue to go. Now, Paul talks about this victory right before chapter 3. Starting in chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about the suffering that the gospel has brought him. So why does he talk about victory before suffering? Because Paul wants us to have the confidence that this battle has already been waged, fought, and won. It's not iffy. It's a done deal. See, the situation in Paul's day in Asia looked kind of bleak. All right, the book of 2 Corinthians that you and I are studying, scholars tell us it's the fourth letter that Paul wrote to that particular church. Two of them have been lost, the first and third. But the second one is the book of 1 Corinthians that we read, and the fourth is what we're studying right now. I would argue with you that the church at Corinth was the most messed up church in all of the New Testament. You know, a lot of times people go, oh, well, that's the church of Laodicea in Revelation. You know, that lukewarm church, and certainly they had their issues. But if you want to see a, a church that is struggling to, to live for Christ, I encourage you, go read the book of 1 Corinthians. Those first 11 chapters, you're going to go, they're doing what? So Paul is writing about Christ's victory even though it didn't look like the gospel was having a whole lot of effect in Corinth or in Asia. See, Paul was confident in this. It may not look good right now, but I know what God's going to do somewhere down the future. And I think this is so applicable to you and I today, especially as we survey the landscape of America. Let's just be honest. This is a nation that, that was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, you can look at our two founding documents, the Declaration and the Constitution, and there are tons of biblical references all throughout both documents. But I think we also need to be very honest here in 2019, America is a post-Christian nation. Now that's not meant to be a condemnation, rather that ought to raise our spiritual antennas to go, listen, that means we have the work of evangelism to do in our home country. This is why Jesus says, you'll receive power from me and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all right, Franklin County, Judea, Virginia, Samaria, North America, and to the ends of the earth. So we have to be diligent that wherever God sends us, it is for a gospel purpose. There are two stories that broke yesterday that show the moral depravity of our nation right now. There was a shooting down in El Paso that left at least 20 
dead. I was told in Sunday school there was a shooting uh, last night in Ohio that left about nine dead there. I mean, the, the number of shootings that, that we're seeing is skyrocketing. The, the level of depravity is almost incomprehensible right now. Our country seems to be slipping further and further away from our founding. We, we read daily about uh, these experts saying, oh, well, you know, there are fewer people going to church. There are fewer people getting baptized. Oh, woe is me. Can I just be honest with you right now? The church is not dying. God is purifying it. Now, how do I know that? Because Jesus promised in Matthew 16, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, Jesus, one million and one, Satan, zero. The victory is certain, church. Yeah, you know what? God is allowing his church to be purified. He is revealing the fact that not all those who sit in the pew every Sunday belong to God. And that ought to cause us to stop and say, Lord, search my heart, know me, try me, reveal to me if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what David's prayer was there in Psalm 139. So the church is not dying, it's simply being purified. I get it, sometimes we feel like we're spinning our wheels. You know, the more we share the gospel, the more doors get slammed in our face, the more people... You know, harass us and all of this. Don't take it personal. Because it's not about you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus, the only one who can save them. So what you do is when you share and they don't respond, you gracefully withdraw. You pray for them by name. Continue to pray every day. Maybe God will give you another chance. And then you go to the next person. Because God in his infinite wisdom has promised to save some. We don't have time to sit back and lick our wounds and whine, woe is me, about the situation of the world when there are 50,000 people a day who die and the vast majority of them do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't have time to sit back and worry about things that we can't change. You and I only have so much time and every day that we are alive brings us one day closer to the day we're out of time. We don't have time to sit here and, and go, well, I don't know, are we really going to win this or not? Yeah, I know we're going to win it. Because it's based on Jesus, not Justin. That's good news. I get it. It, it, it may look like we're down on the scoreboard, but this is what I know. The game's not over yet. So keep fighting. As we surrender God and obey his will, we know this. Victory in this life and in the life to come is certain. Notice, salvation isn't say a prayer and wait to go to heaven. Salvation is to enter into a relationship and the abundant life that God has for you now, which is just a brief glimpse of what it's going to be like. Live in that victory now by worshiping God, by being obedient, being in his will, and and sharing the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to have difficulties in life. You know, Jesus in the gospel of Matthew says that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. What does that mean? It means that believers and unbelievers alike are going to experience the same hardships in life. 
You know, disease and death are a respecter of no person. If you were to look at our prayer list that gets published every week, up under health, you could probably out beside about half of them, you could write the word cancer. Just our community, where our church is planted, just our community lost three people in it this week. Death is a reality that we have to face because of the rebellion in the Garden of Eden and the rebellion that goes on even today. The greatest proof that what God said about in the Garden of Eden is true is the obituary section. The difference between a believer and a non-believer in facing death is this. There is nothing that Satan or this world can take from us as believers that really matters. They can take our possessions. They can take our health. They may even be granted permission to take our life, but in His sovereignty and in His power, they cannot touch our soul because that belongs to Jesus Christ. So even if we lose everything for the purpose of the gospel, what have we lost? Nothing. Nothing that matters. So how do we live this victory out? It starts with this. We have to have a clear conscience. This is the first point of application. We've got to be honest this morning. Sometimes loving people is difficult. Some, sometimes people make it tough to love them, right? Sometimes people abuse you, they mistreat you. Sometimes you look around and, and at the lost and you're like, man, it seems like everything's going great for them. I'm over here, I'm trying to love Jesus, I'm trying to do the right thing, and all I know is headache and heartache. I guarantee you, every, there's not a single person in this uh, room this morning that has not said in their mind, if not out their mouth, one of those two statements. But I want you to draw some encouragement from this because you aren't the first. This is his oldest time. Listen to what King David writes in Psalm 13. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Then later on, a prophet in the Old Testament, a minor prophet known as Habakkuk, he asked this question, How, oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Later, Habakkuk says this, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. David goes, God, how long? My enemies are surrounding me. They're laughing at me. They're mocking me. They're trying to kill me. How long? Habakkuk goes, Man, things have gotten so bad in, in the nation of Israel right now that the unrighteous have overrun the righteous, so justice is bought and paid for. You know, I, I think if we are really honest, Psalm 13 and the book of Habakkuk speak exactly where we are as a nation. It seems like our enemies are constantly coming at us, you know, it, it, from Christianity's perspective. And it seems like the only people who get real justice in this nation are those who can buy it. How long? 
Well, let's come into the New Testament, last book of Scripture, Revelation, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. How long, O Lord, until you judge the unrighteous and avenge the righteous? Now, in response to that question, here's God's response. Be patient and wait. There's a time coming. How long, Lord, are you going to let my enemies surround me, mock me, and seek my life? Be patient. How long are you going to let the unrighteous run over the righteous? Be patient. How long before you avenge us? Be patient. See, it's a call for you and I to trust in the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. To know that what is playing out before us has a plan and a purpose. Why is it that God has not avenged the righteous and, and put an end to the tomfoolery that is going on around us? Because in his wisdom, he is extending grace to those who are rebelling against him. But don't, don't misunderstand. The scripture says God is not mocked. The, the unsaved are storing up God's wrath against them and it will be poured out undiluted on them in those last days. And again, if we're honest, sometimes even in the church we go, man, I wish that day was today. I wish, God, you would put everything right today. The church, we need to be characterized and known not for our cries of judgment and justice, but rather for our cries for grace, mercy, and patience. Why? Because of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, for you, that's all of us, we're dead in sins and trespasses, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world, among the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom... Also, we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul says the reason we should be crying out for grace, mercy, and patience is because the judgment that we want God to give them is the exact judgment that we deserve. The things that they are doing are the things that we have done. And so we're grateful that God was gracious, merciful, and patient with us. Therefore, we need to pray that God has the same grace, mercy, and patience on them. Because if we really believe what the Bible says about those who die having rejected the gospel, if we really believe that those who die having trusted Jesus spend an eternity in hell, then there is no possible conceivable way we could be crying out for God to come now. You know, it's really for us to use generic terms like four billion people don't have a relationship with Jesus. Two billion of that four haven't even heard the gospel. Well, you know, God gave them a chance too bad. They, they chose not to. It's really easy for us to be callous and flippant with that. But I wonder if our tune would change if instead of saying four billion, you inserted 
a name of somebody that you know that is lost right now? Would we be as quick to call for God's judgment if it meant that our husband, our wife, our children, our grandchildren, our grandparents, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, would we be so quick for God to return and judge them all if it meant that someone near and dear to us was to hear the words, depart from me, you cursed for I never knew you. I would submit to you that our cries would change very, very quickly. Instead of, come Lord Jesus, we would be crying, Lord, give us a little bit more time. Please let them trust in the gospel. I guess the real question we have to ask is this. Are we okay with people that we know and love spending eternity in hell? This is why a clear conscience matters for two reasons. Number one, before people will listen to what we say, they will observe how we live. Is my life a consistent, clear witness of the power of the gospel? It's not, am I perfect? When I mess up, do I own up? Do I go and say, Father, forgive me for I've sinned against you? Do I go to seek and make it right with those that I have wronged? We talked a little bit about it in, in Sunday school. You know, there's a difference when we come home and, man, we just had a bad day, and the kids, they're, they're being kids, and, and they irritate us, and we scream and just lose our minds on them. There's a difference in us going to them and going, well, listen, you know, the reason I yelled at you is you were being a dingbat. So if you wouldn't have been a dingbat, I wouldn't have lost my cool with you, but I'm sorry because I shouldn't have done that. All right, let, can we be honest? That's what we do most of the time, right? Now here's the difference. Listen, I shouldn't have lost my cool. I was wrong. You know, the Bible says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I didn't live that out. Will you forgive me? Do you see the difference in those two? In the first one, we're not accepting our responsibility. We're shifting the blame, saying, you made me do that. In the second, we're going, I'm a sinner the same as you are. And so the answer for you is the answer for me. And the answer is Jesus. We have to maintain a clear conscience through a clean witness. The second way that we maintain the clear conscience is this. Can you honestly say that you have shared the gospel with everybody that God has placed in front of you and you felt, man, I need to say something? Now I already know the answer to that because I'm as guilty as every one of you. The answer is no. We've missed opportunities. So what do we do? we confess it and we receive the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ and we ask him for his help in being more bold to love him more than we fear their rejection that's how we maintain a clear conscience listen it's not about being perfect it's about pointing others to Jesus not only do we need to have a clear conscience but the last thing in this text is this we need to have a conquering faith. You have to answer a question 
not only this morning, but every morning that you wake up. Is Jesus worth it? Is risking rejection, ridicule, persecution, is it worth sharing the truth of the gospel? Because I'm going to tell you, folks, we live in a sin-sickened, fallen world. And we have got to believe that God is more powerful than the forces of hell that come against us. We have to have a steadfast belief that, as Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. The world around us isn't right. And this isn't God's fault. It's our fault because we are sinners by birth and by choice. But I have to have a steadfast belief in the God of the Bible that one day he is going to set all things right. And so I'm willing to be wronged, mocked, ridiculed, persecuted, whatever it takes, so that they hear the gospel. This is what it means to live out victory in Jesus. Because I'm not going forward in my strength. I'm going in the power and the glory of the same God who died on the cross and Satan and his minions and the whole world thought, ha, we finally got rid of him. And then three days later, Jesus snatched certain defeat he claimed that victory. We go in his power. And he doesn't lose. Because he doesn't lose, we don't lose. For some of you this morning, it means this. You need to come to Jesus in faith. You've been living and maybe even your words say, I believe in God, but your life demonstrates the exact opposite. You're trusting in being a good person, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, whatever. It's about understanding that there's nothing you and I can do to earn our way into heaven. It is sheerly the unmerited favor, the grace of God that saves us. And you need to surrender that to him today for some we know we don't have a clear conscience and we need to confess knowing this that if we're a genuine child of God we have already been forgiven isn't that amazing that when you come to Jesus your past present future sins they're removed as far as the east is from the west on 103 tells us you've already been forgiven for it God is simply looking for an acknowledgement that we were wrong and then trusting in Him to be sufficient. And to go, Lord, you saved me and you changed in me. I'm not that person. Help me to be who you created me to be. And every day you get up, Lord, help me to die to myself and be alive to you. And when you get it right, you praise him. And when you get it wrong, you confess it and you begin again. See, Satan's wanting to leap, keep you in doubt and discouragement based on your past. Jesus says, not what you've done, it's what I did that matters. 
And so what you've done is inconsequential. What's now important is what you're going to do next. So that's my question to you. What are you going to do? In light of who God is, in light of what He has done, in light of what His Word has said, how will you respond? Would you stand as we're going to pray together? Fathers, we continue just to, to move in and through this service. We praise you for your goodness and your grace. Father, you know where each of us stands with you. You know whether we have trusted you or not. You know whether we're living the way we should or we're not. And so, Father, you're calling out to the saint and the sinner to simply come to you in faith. Confessing sins for those who are lost to be forgiven, to begin a new relationship today. For those who have already been saved, simply feel and to know that we have been restored to a right relationship with you and to begin again. And so Lord, whatever you have said, whatever you're asking us to do in response to your word, may we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. If you want, you can come and pray here. Pray at the front pew. Pray with me. There are other people in this room who will pray with you. But let's respond and worship to Christ and His Word.